Welcome to Valley Talk. I'm your host, Heather Stark. We talk with a lot of politicians on this show. And this week, we are continuing a discussion that we have had with our three candidates for King County Council in our, the position that covers our, our area. Our first candidate and guest here is Joe Cohen. Joe, welcome. Thanks, Heather. And your bio is that you study political science at Western Washington University, went to Washington, D.C., and joined Senator Maria Catwell's, Catwell's legislative staff. And you became involved with criminal justice and uh, joined the U.S. Department of Justice uh, in 2009. You worked in the Obama White House. And you have a lot, I'm not going to go into everybody's, you know, favorite um, issues, but we can do that later. We also have Kathy Lambert. Kathy, welcome. Thank you. Kathy has been a school teacher. She's an author and she was a previous legislator. Is it legislator if it's just for the state? Yes. Representative, is it? Uh, well, a legislator can be either a house member or a, a um, senator, but um, I was a house member. Okay. In the last thank you. thank you for correcting me on that. And she has is the incumbent representative for King County Council in this position. Um, her um, main interests, of course, are uh, uh, education, and she likes the she's really uh, interested in the county roads, and we'll talk more about her main interests coming up. Sarah Perry is our third and uh, not what do they say last but not least candidate for our discussion today and Sarah is a small business owner and she's a seasoned executive in the nonprofit and government sectors she was chief development officer and for social venture partners director of the university uh, initiatives at Seattle U and executive director at Eastside Housing and so welcome to you Sarah thank you Heather appreciate being here okay um so um, what we're going to do here first is we're going to address an issue that Sarah brought to my attention. On the Valley Radio website, uh, we listed, I'll be honest with you, it's been a couple years since we started listing donors, and we listed donors on our website, and Sarah pointed out that Kathy Lambert has been a donor. I don't know, because I haven't had time to look it up, what year that donation was made, but even more significant, there apparently are many people, at least five, named Kathy Lambert in our area. So we're not quite sure which Kathy Lambert made the donation, and we're not quite sure when it was. Kathy, you told me that you did, back when the radio station was starting, make a donation. Is that correct? That is correct. And the very beginning, uh, Stuart List was putting together this radio station. Um, I think it even had a different call number at that point. Yes. And so um, he asked for some support. And I, as a council member, believe that communication is really important. And so I was able to give money to get it up and running. But to my recollection, that was the only time I've made a contribution to that. And I don't remember what the amount was. Yeah. And as I suggested, you know, gosh, I mean, if we all want to be on the same footing, if anybody sees that as an advantage for Kathy, I will be happy to take your donations. <laughs> I think that's wonderful, Heather, and good for you, and touche. You know, I assume you're not uh, listing all of your donors ever on your website. I'm assuming it's as current as possible, so possibly it's a different Happy Lambert in the, entirely. So thank you. Appreciate yeah, and, and, and I have no way of knowing. I can find out, but right now I don't know. So let's just get it on the table. There it's open for discussion, and there are no secrets. You know, I... I learned, I, I'm one of those personality types where I have no boundaries and so therefore I have no secrets. <laughs> Which is both. <laughs> so let's get going. Last time we talked about a number of different issues. This time in the interview to wrap it up, I wanna talk about some more global issues that are facing the county. And let's just start in alphabetical order here. And as I explained before, I'm not setting a timer. I'm just gonna wing it if it seems like uh, we're straying off point or if somebody has taken a little bit more time than the others, we'll wing it and I will move on and hopefully you'll all be kind and think it's fair. Um, and it will be in my intention to be fair. So let's talk about the issue. Not too long ago, um, King County Council um, put up $1.47 million to identify groups and neighborhoods at highest risk of shootings. 
and they are using this uh, supposedly to control gun violence. And um, how do you feel about that, Joe? Do you think this will be effective? Do you think that it's um, something that's necessary? Do you think that uh, it's a good spend, uh, expenditure of money for the King County Council? There has been an increase in gun violence in King County, as well as across the country. And we are looking for the reasons why maybe the pandemic is a part of it, um, but we need to do something. We need to at least try. And there are a couple of different ways uh, to deal with gun violence. And one of them is of course law enforcement and having cops on the beat uh, to deter that sort of violence and to investigate and uh, have detectives to uh, run down and solve gun violence after the fact. Uh, another way is to prevent gun violence. And I think this is where you're talking about this 1.47 uh, in emergency expenditures. And it's important that we try and uh, identify individuals that are, and it's a small number of individuals who are involved and who have the highest likelihood of being involved in gun violence. And we can use data, and this is uh, part of where this money is going towards, use data and some of the models that have been effective in other parts of the country, Oakland has a model, uh, to identify this, uh, this small number of individuals who have a high likelihood to be involved and to try and intervene and to meet with them on their level, try and get them involved in a program uh, that would prevent the sort of gun violence from taking place in, uh, at all. And like I said, Oakland has been effective at this. Other parts of the country have not. So a lot of this comes down to implementation, but these programs do involve an expenditure. Some of the, there are some in, uh, incentives that go along with this to have people be involved in the program. Uh, obviously you need people to be employed to uh, work with individuals on their level. This is not law enforcement, this is trying to get people before they interact with law enforcement. Uh, so I do believe it was a good expenditure. Okay. And to build, play devil's advocate, um, we often hear the um, um, statement that there are plenty of laws on the books already for gun control that are not enforced. Do you, have you heard that argument? And if so, what is your stance on that? So I, I, let me know if, you, if there's something specific that you're referring to, but uh, it, this is really about preventing gun violence in general and uh, identifying individuals who are uh, the highest likelihood. And it's a small number of people and then there is data out there. Some of the numbers, some of the data involves looking at the number of arrests that individuals have had, particular communities that people are a part of. So really we can use the, the data that we have and the technology that we have uh, in this way. And, uh, and that's why I think it's, it's, it's a good idea. Okay, thank you. Kathy, um, what is your issue uh, or what is your stance on this 1.47 million? It sounds to me like it's going to be basically a data collection expenditure. Is that your understanding? And if not, please tell me what it is. Yes, well, as we've said that, um, gun violence is on the increase. And so we have this many to go out and look at who are the highest risk, um, to look at gang activities and try to get counseling and jobs. We also know that there is a much higher incident of suicides when there is a gun in the home. And so that's why it's so important with that idea and also safe storage so that young people um, don't come across the, these guns and have these horrific accidents that are heartbreaking. So I think as we look at background checks to make sure that people are mentally stable at this point and um, that they don't have a criminal background um, that has negated them by law is really important on who owns a gun. And then I think there's two things. We need to educate people on, on guns to know how important um, it is to properly handle them and that they are in fact deadly. And I think one of the other things that we need to do is to bring back more education on 
the value of human life and that no matter how angry you are at somebody, shooting them is not the solution. Okay, if I could pin you down a little bit more though, Kathy, for this 1.47 million that the county is spending, yes, will it go to the uh, points that you just mentioned or will it be going for data collection? What, what, what is this 1.47 million going for? Well, I think public health is working on the whole spectrum. First, they're going to get the information. We know what parts of the county are having an increase. And um, we have very clear scattergrams of where these activities are happening. They're happening, you know, in mostly in South County. And so looking at what kind of services can public health bring to that and bringing in, as we find the data, the counseling and the activities that we have, um, like 180 and other programs to help alleviate this. Okay, thank you. Sarah, your view on this 1.47 million uh, expenditure, is it a good one? What will it do in your view? Yeah, I need more information about it because 1.47 million is a lot of money for data. It is a lot of money if it's just data collection. So I didn't get a clear sense there that it was going to where the lion's share of that money is being used. And I'm concerned about bias uh, bias in the neighborhoods that are targeted. So I'd like to know that um, it is actually being applied uh, without bias. And um, and I still, you know, suicide yeah, it, by gun. Sarah, if I uh, could ask for clarification, what, what, do you mean, what do you mean by bias? Are you talking about racial profiling or what, what are you talking about with bias? Yeah, racial profiling, yeah, right. Uh, uh, communities of color. I would like to know um, whether there is bias uh, in within this 1.7, the use of the 1.7 and the data. I'd like to know the information around that. So I'm going to look into that a little bit more so that I understand that. But 1.47 million is a lot of money for data. Um, and I'm particularly concerned about suicide being the leading cause of death by guns. And in Washington state, every 14 hours, someone is killed by gun violence. But in these mass shootings, these are white folks. You know, these, we've had so many gun deaths by white terrorists, Heather, and uh, we're not talking about that. And we need to be looking at, I mean, we're looking at background checks and can people have, have uh, guns with mental health check? That's there, right? So what is, what is this adding that's in addition uh, beyond the data? What are we doing with the data that's in addition to what's already going on in these, um, in these laws around safety? I just have a concern anytime it, it, it get a spidey sense when we start pointing fingers at certain groups of people. Um, and I think we have to be careful and make sure that we're, we're um, looking at things from an unbiased standpoint and that we're looking for data that's unbiased and it's not set up for racial profiling or, or um, unnecessary bias in the neighborhood. Okay. All right. And you're not sure whether this will have a bias approach and you're not sure whether it will be all data collection. Uh, it sounds like none of the three of you are are totally sure whether this is just going to be data collection or whether it's going to be programmed as well. Is that correct? It's, it's not just data collection. It's it's okay. also going to... That's right. That <laughs> and I'm not really sure how it could be biased. When, when a gun is shot, we know where that happened. So, and hopefully we have ideas of who, who did the shooting. So I'm not sure how that would be biased, but um, public health is very much on top of it. You, you did mention gains, Kathy. Yes. Yeah, you did mention gains. So it was sort of setting it up ahead of time as a bias. Yeah. Well, um, I am on the anti-gang task force. So I do get a lot of, da of data on that. Okay. All right. Thank you. Follow up to that question. A lot of our gun violence is used in domestic violence. I went through um, most of your, your backgrounds. I don't see a huge emphasis from any of you really on looking at the problem of inter, uh, intimate partner violence or domestic violence or gendered violence. Um, Sarah, let's start with you. Uh, what, what is your stance on what role the county should have in that particular problem? Yeah, I'm. you know, my... I love my husband. He's gentle. He doesn't raise his voice, but I wasn't as lucky in my first marriage. And I um, have an indelible impression in my bones of the protection that's needed. And I'll be very, very strong on protection when it's needed and where it's needed. Um, some of the challenges we have in our domestic violence hotline and our crisis hotline is that it is not relevant for some of our communities of color. And so I want to make sure that we have people that we are working with our different communities to 
make sure it is as accessible as possible within the frame of reference of the community in a way that will address issues of, of, of resistance and shame and reaching out for that support, um, as well as other, other ways of connecting for support services. So I wanna make sure that our dollars are being used wisely and well and across all of our different communities appropriately and effectively. And that would happen through conversations within each of the communities around this, this area. Okay, thank you. Kathy, can you address that, please? Uh, this is a um, topic near and dear to my heart. Um, as some of you may know, I am a survivor of domestic violence. And when I became a legislator, nobody knew that. And <clears throat> in my first week, Suzette Cook came to me and told me she wanted me to write two major pieces of legislation. Um, and this was one of them. So she had no idea the background I brought to that. And in that legislation, I wrote foreign protection orders with um, eventually five states to be able to accept a foreign a protection order when you moved out of state to go on vacation or go visit family for the holidays. You're, until before then, you had no protection in that order. But under this new law, you would be given protection for five days until they could, if there was an issue, verify it. And um, it is now state law. So the experience that I had firsthand helped us to be able to get um, laws that were based on reality. And um, what we have done at the county is we have an entire DV unit and that DV unit does a lot of counseling. We work with the many different groups that provide DV services. And we also have now a, a law where the guns are removed and then they are taken out of the home until somebody petitions the court to be able to have them returned. And that is something that our prosecutor, Dan Satterberg, has worked very hard on. And uh, we are leading in many avenues um, in the DV areas. Thank you, Joe. And Joe, if you tell me you're also a survivor, <laughs> we'll have we'll have a perfect triumvirate here. <laughs> so, when it comes to domestic violence, first of all, uh, really need to have um, uh, a uh, a hotline that's effective that people can call, whether they're a man or a woman or uh, you know because abuse goes every way. Um, and there also needs to be a, an effective um, enforcement mechanism uh, when these cases are enforced, uh, when, these, when they do come to light because only 25% of domestic violence cases are actually reported. And that is, uh, it's a real problem because people feel like they don't, they're trapped and they're in the same house as someone and they can't actually um, report this for fear, out of fear. So there needs to be a way uh, where people can feel safe and where they can get out of the environment, the dangerous environment that they're in. Uh, protective orders were mentioned and that is uh, a very uh, important legal tool uh, to uh, have an effective protective order um, administrative process uh, where someone doesn't feel as though they can come, if they come forward and seek a protective order that they're gonna be retaliated against by their significant other. Uh, and, and making sure that's, uh, uh, that's implemented um, at the county prosecutor's office and in our court system is very important. Thank you. We're gonna take our first break. We're gonna uh, spread some messages here and then we're gonna come back and I'm gonna ask you a couple follow-up questions. So thank you for listening to Valley Talk. I'm here with our three candidates for King County Council race and we will be back after this. You're listening to Valley 104.9 FM, your Valley community radio station. Join us for our weekly paranormal radio show, Northwest Phenomenon, each Sundays at 7 p.m. Have a story you'd like to share? Call our Northwest Phenom hotline 24-7-775-990-5151. Or you can email me on my website, onairmario.com. All calls and emails are confidential. Listen on demand, subscribe to our podcast, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Search Northwest Phenomenon. We'll see you Sunday at 7 p.m. right here on Valley 104.9.
Remember to take the journey on Sunday nights at 10 p.m. to midnight with Musical Star Streams, hosted by Forrest. Each week brings a new two-hour episode of Exotic Electronica. It follows Radio Masterpieces, which airs at 9 p.m. on Valley 104.9, your community station. And thanks for listening to Valley 104.9. Radio Survivors, our weekly show where we feature stories and interviews on community radio, radio history, podcasting, low-power FM, college radio, and more. Radio Survive on Valley 104.9 FM, 6 to 7 p.m. on Wednesday nights. Hi, I'm Chris Heim, inviting you to join me in the Global Village for the best in music from all around the globe. We highlight new releases, rare and classic recordings, birthdays, holidays, and a host of features, specials, and unique concert performances, all drawing on styles and influences from many different corners of the world. Great sounds from all around the globe in the Global Village, Thursday nights from 7 till 9, here on Valley 104.9 FM, your station for Northwest Eclectic Music. Welcome back to Valley Talk. I'm Heather Stark, and with me are three candidates for our King County Council position, Kathy Lambert, the incumbent, Sarah Perry, who is uh, interested in uh, taking on the job. And so uh, we have Joe Cohen, who is also interested in taking on that job. And I've asked questions about gun violence and the expenditures of the county on gun violence. And I've asked about domestic violence, which is an issue near and dear to me. And um, I want to ask then, this seems to be the logical next step, which is policing. How do you feel? What is the role of policing in general? What is the role of policing in domestic violence? And um, what are your views about the whole reimagining policing that has been on everybody's tongue for the last few months? And Kathy, let's start with you. Thank you. Well, this is something that is really important to me. Um, as you know, I grew up in a policeman's home, <clears throat> pardon me. And as part of the time, my dad was night chief of police in San Francisco in the rank of a captain. So um, we had lots of officers in our house. Um, so one of the things that he implemented was community policing in his department. And a couple of years ago on the council, we did a study on what would it take to have all the sheriff's department implement community policing. And I really believe that that is the way that we need to go. The police need to be integral parts of the community. They need to be going to the Kiwanis and the Rotary and walking into the businesses and saying hello so that the people in the community get to know their officers. Um, some of our officers in some of our smaller cities have given out their cell phone numbers so that people can call when they have questions. It's about networking. In this last budget, I put in money for a program called RADAR. And RADAR is the program where a counselor goes along with the officer on calls so that they are clearly marked as counselors. And we now will have the money to go in the entire unincorporated area. It was piloted in the north part of the county. It's going to be next in the unincorporated area. And hopefully as we gear up the hiring of these counselors, that the cities, when they do their contracts with us, will um, also want radar counselors to go with them. So most people don't realize that over half of the budget of the sheriff's office is through contract cities. And the contract cities get to choose how many officers they want, what level of service they want, and who is going to be their chief. So, we have a very good system because all of our cities can choose to leave if they don't like the service levels and they have all signed back on again. So continuing to keep the good relationship with the cities, making sure that the cities are as they are telling us what level of policing, what they want done, what fits their community norms and expanding the networking through radar and um, bringing more counselors and assets to the officers in the field so when they go on a call, they know exactly what services are available for that particular need. Okay, thank you. Sarah, your views on that, please. You know, 12 laws have been passed recently to promote transparency and accountability in our legislature, and I know more on the way. So I think we've, been, we've had some terrific improvements that you know, there are bad apples in any profession and you weed out the bad apples and you've got these beautiful folks that are 
really focused on the community. And I do think we need deep, deep community engagement. Uh, but we also need the, uh, the, the civilian oversight. We need folks to be participating with our community, with our officers, with our sheriffs, uh, so that they're building trust. And uh, that is the most critical piece, is building trust and developing those relationships. So um, I'm very excited about what is possible together in uh, building back trust in the sheriff's office and providing the support that's needed uh, for social service support and for drug and alcohol specialist support, if that's what's needed. And you did mention domestic violence. You know, some of that, uh, you, I, you absolutely need protection when protection is needed in domestic violence cases. And you also need drug and alcohol support specialists in those cases. And you need uh, social service. And it depends on, you know, you have to get out of the crisis situation and then move into those spaces. So having a trifecta like that, I think, is really critical. For, uh, for domestic violence. And it's a cycle, as you know, so everybody participates in the ways that they participate. And we need to make sure everybody is getting the support and services that they need to break that cycle um, and to get the support uh, to, to make those changes on both ends. Um, and so uh, I feel like we're moving in the right direction. And I'm very excited about the strengthening, the bringing in the new director for the Office of Law Enforcement Oversight and strengthening the civilian participation uh, of, um, of, of how those, how those, uh, how the sheriff is going to be reviewed and how those laws are applied and where they're upheld and where they're not. And I am always a big fan of audits. I am always a big fan of making sure that we say we want to do something. Did we do it? Can we see the data? Can we follow the data for the decisions that we make that will be the best for everybody involved? Okay. Thank you. Joe. So we touched on this a bit in uh, last time, and I have about 10 years of experience in criminal justice policy. So this is a very important issue for me. And you know, as I mentioned before, this um, concept of defunding the police, I do not believe uh, is the way to go. Uh, in fact, it, good policing is not cheap, actually, when you think about it, because it takes a lot of training uh, to uh, make sure you have uh, officers who can de-escalate a situation. Uh, and it also takes money to hire officers, whether you're generally hiring numbers or you're paying a, an adequate uh, amount to attract good officers. And it shouldn't be an issue in, in our county, although it has become one, where Funding for the sheriff's office has decreased uh, recently. And I believe that's been uh, problematic. Um, and then you talk about reforms and there are reforms that are needed in policing. And there's a lot of history uh, and I'm not gonna go into all of it, but it, a lot of it gets into kind of going back to the start of the war on drugs and how policing became much more aggressive. Uh, and uh, we're kind of uh, going through a change right now where um, we've seen some of the problems and the lack of trust that that has uh, instilled in certain communities, uh, particularly communities of color. And I think we need to have some empathy in that regard. Uh, I, may not, I may not see a police officer in a particular way as somebody else. Uh, and it's really important to have empathy there. Uh, and some of, the, some of the reforms that the state legislature has enacted, and we talked about the duty to intervene, how, there will be, that will be a cultural change in law enforcement. An officer who now sees another officer doing the wrong thing uh, when it comes to use of force and now has a duty, a legal duty to intervene in that situation. So the council is going to be doing a lot of work in this area, appointing the next sheriff, setting the duties of the sheriff's office and overseeing the implementation of these laws that are coming down from the state level so that's really, it's really important to have somebody with experience in law enforcement. And that's some, one of the things I bring to the table. Okay, thank you. Snohomish County um, considered and passed hazard pay for certain individuals, grocery store workers, et cetera, uh, because of COVID. A number, Seattle certainly did. Um, did King County, I'm not aware that they, I think they did a little bit. What, what is your view on the hazard pay for um, essential workers since not all essential workers got it, only some essential workers got it? 
And let's just stick with you, Joe, if you don't mind. Yeah, so King County passed a, uh, a, a pay for essential workers in grocery stores. So, and I thought that was important because when you think about the last year, think about where, where we went when we were all holed up in our homes, if we were, you know, if we were fortunate enough to be able to work from home, I, I practice law, so I'm fortunate enough to be able to uh, work from home. But when I did go out, it was uh, mainly to the grocery store because there was really nowhere else to go. And a lot of times I just went to the grocery store because I needed to get out. I wasn't really because I needed anything. Uh, and those people were there and they were there uh, oftentimes 24 seven. Uh, and, and, and they were undertaking the risks that others of us were not uh, exposing themselves to uh, COVID, uh, people who uh, were, uh, were, were maybe causing trouble in the grocery stores, not wanting to wear masks, things like that. Uh, and I think it was really important uh, that we show the support for those individuals because a lot of us now have uh, much more um, uh, support uh, for our essential workers. Uh, and I think it's I, I important that, if, we, that, we, that we put that into, no, go ahead. If I can interrupt, I guess I yeah. was going more toward the um, interjection of government dictate based on private enterprise, because none of the grocery stores, none of these people um, were government employees and yet a governmental entity decided what they would be uh, paid um, and a special payment. So I guess I was trying to get at that. You know, uh, it's it, it is it a crossover? Is it a blending? Is it a what are your views on the fact that a governmental body dictated what private employers had to pay? Sure. the The government interjects itself into the uh, the market, private market, uh, private companies. Uh, in situations where it's necessary. I think if you look at the minimum wage, that's one area where the government has uh, injected itself. Um, and I think, I think that is uh, important. Uh, same here, we're, these are extraordinary times that we were facing during the pandemic. And sometimes extraordinary times call for uh, government uh, involvement where there might not be government involvement uh, otherwise. Okay, thank you. And Sarah, do you want to answer that question? Do you, do you understand what I was asking, Sarah? Yeah, no, I do. And I think Kathy voted in favor. Uh, yes. You hear me? Yes. Uh -huh. Hello? Yes. Okay. Okay. We're here. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, they were forced, these employees were forced to go to work by the government. They couldn't get unemployment. So well, yeah, that's not necessarily the same thing as being forced to go to work. I mean, there's penalties and realistically, you pretty much have to, you know, but I mean, nobody was holding a gun to their head saying they had to do it. So. But others were getting unemployment, Heather. Others were getting unemployment and they're not getting unemployment. So we had a huge expectation that certain members of our society step up for us and put themselves in the way of hazard for our benefit collectively. I think that was for the greater, it, that, that we need to pay attention to what we are asking of our essential workers. I think it's very important that if they're not able to get that, that uh, we are also compensating them in the face of that danger. Our son works at Costco. He was paid hazard pay. It was a non-issue. It was just an of course, but Costco uh, tries to maintain really strong employee benefits. They're not union. They just do the right thing. So I think that we can have employers that are looking at taking care of employees because they do the work and they're there for us. And, um, and I think if they're not able to get unemployment in other ways, I, I think you're putting them, we're putting them in a really, really tough spot. Okay. All right. Thank you, Kathy. So usually um, I would say that it's a market issue. But this is a pandemic. These are scary times. And especially in the beginning, these people didn't know whether they were going to catch <clears throat> a deadly disease and die. In the very beginning of this, we didn't know how contagious. We didn't know a lot of different things. And yet these people got up every day and went to work so that the rest of us would have food and be able to go and get out of our house just to get out of the house, but also to get food. And so... I think 
under unusual circumstances, you do unusual kinds of things. And I am so respectful of the people who many of them are making um, you know, minimum wage or close to minimum wage to be willing to sacrifice. And I think when they sacrifice for us that at some points we need to sacrifice for them too. And one of the things that my grocery people have said is that they're very thankful that they got the um, hazardous pay. It won't be forever um, until the pandemic is over. And they did extra work. Um, we all remember early on the, the toilet paper um, issues and how many hours of stacking toilet paper that they needed to do. And you know the rush of many things where they had to work long hours and even close the stores down early so that they could stop because of how much was going out so quickly. The one thing my people are telling me now at the grocery store is to please respect the screens that they put up for safety so that you don't walk around them and still blow into their face to please respect that. So uh, I think we've seen new categories of heroes that maybe in the past we didn't think about being such big heroes, but there were many heroes and grocery workers and others um, were and are heroes. Okay. Another turn here. Um, I have been told by um, different county employees that we have to make our rural areas self-sustaining. I have three questions. Do you agree with that? What does it mean to be self-sustaining and how do we do it? Sarah, you want to be my first victim here? <laughs> that is a $300 million question, Heather. <laughs> So can I get a raise? Can I get a raise for coming up with that one? <laughs> uh, you know, it is very important that we are all able to have a sustainable budget in, in all of our areas, in the cities, um, in, in unincorporated, but it, we just simply don't have the base in unincorporated King County. We, you know, we have uh, our population in our urban areas. And, um, and we have in this district, especially, we have one third of all of the unincorporated King County roads, 554 miles of unincorporated roads of the 1,554 miles. And, you know, it's just a huge, huge expense. And so um, we have to be able to balance. We have to be able to make it work. It is the golden question. It's what many people are working on and, and are Budgets are broken, our formulas were broken uh, for how we did that because we set it up based on a system that worked at the time, it no longer works. Gas tax no longer works. The industries are changing dramatically and we have to find ways to make sure we can take care of our roads and bridges uh, and can take care of our infrastructure and we have to be paying attention when we bring developers in. Are we looking at the sewer? Are we looking at the roads? Are we paying attention to the impact that we're having while developers are building these spaces, what does that mean for the larger community? Are we having enough of those conversations? So um, I think it's a critical issue and I think it, it takes some serious conversation and I am really, really um, eager to get involved with those conversations with many, many different people. The issue is regional. So it's gotta be state and county and city and civic organization and nonprofit organizations and faith-based organizations coming together, environment, education, and talking about this to come up with a concrete solution that makes sure that everybody can thrive. So if I'm extrapolating from your response, what making the rural areas self-sustaining means to you is having them be able to contribute more to road repair and all that, or to cover it on their own? What, what does it mean to you? No, 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 no. No, I don't think they need to contribute more. No, I think we need to look at the budget as a whole. Okay. And and look at where we are in our in our whole system and our structure and make sure that the decisions that we're making takes everybody into account. So, no, I do not think that the unincorporated communities need to be contributing more. OK, so do you then not agree that they need to be self-sustaining or do you agree uh, with the statement that the rural areas need to become self-sustaining, more self-sustaining? No. Okay. I don't think they need, I think it needs to be a collective. I don't think the rural areas in and of themselves need to be self-sustaining. Okay, thank you. Kathy, 
Can so you- uh, this is indeed a huge topic. And this county is on the forefront of it because we have 11% of the county that's unincorporated. And the next lowest county in the state is I think 28% unincorporated. The ultimate build out is that only 6% of the county will remain rural. And so we can barely make ends meet when only 11% of the people are paying for these roads. And it'll only get worse when there's only 6% paying. So right now, the average house is paying less than they did in 2017 for the roads allocation. So when the growth management um, was passed, they had a task force that said, how are we going to fund this now that we have taken away the ability for businesses to generate the revenue? Um, so when we took that out and put them into the cities, that the idea was that the cities would figure out how many people from the unincorporated area were shopping in their cities and give that money um, back to the unincorporated areas. That has never happened. Uh, There have been several attempts to do so. Fred Jarrett led one, Dow led another. And basically what the city says, we have our own problems. And so that's not our problem. So um, the unanimously on the King County Council, we have gone together to the legislature to say, you've got to fix this formula. And basically they said, the cities don't want that to happen. And there are more cities than there are counties. And so they have ignored it. And again, this last session, they haven't done anything to fix that idea. So if if the cities won't pay towards the taxes that they're collecting on people who live in the unincorporated areas, and there's not enough tax base because there aren't enough people to pay in countywide for the 1500 miles of roads, which would stretch from the Canadian border to the Mexican border, And uh, we get about $100 million. We have had two studies to say what is the optimal amount of money that would make things sustainable. And it is around 500 million. There is no way if outside studies are saying that it would take about 500 million and you get 100 million, there's no way you can stretch 100 million into that. So if you can't um, have other people help pay because of the state formula, there's not enough tax space, then the only other thing you can do is to build some neighborhood businesses to help generate some money. It will not generate all that is needed, but we have got to generate enough because we are at the precipice of having our roads go over where we won't be able to just repair them. We may have to reconstruct. And we've already laid out what roads are on that precipice that if we don't take care of them soon, they will have to be reconstructed and it is much more expensive than if you are able to repair. Okay, so thank you, Kathy. Pay. I'm, I'm gonna move on here. Yes, that's fine, <laughs> that was the last sentence. Uh, Joe, do you wanna address that that question? But, and the, again, let me repeat, the question is, uh, we've been told the rural areas need to be self-sustaining. What does self-sustaining mean to you? And do you agree with that? And how would we do it? Sure, a lot of the a lot of the pieces to this have been covered. Uh, to go back and to why we're in this problem in the first place is the uh, essentially the growth management act set up this system where um, those in the unincorporated parts of King County are going to be paying for the roads in unincorporated King County. So nobody else pays for the roads and bridges in unincorporated King County. And as the population of unincorporated King County has decreased relative to the cities in King County, the incorporated parts of King County, uh, the tax base as has been mentioned uh, has not been enough to keep up with the repair of the roads and the bridges. And we are at this point now where uh, if if we can't repair the roads and the bridges we're gonna have to put them out of commission or it's gonna cost a lot more to actually rebuild the roads Uh, because obviously maintenance is much less expensive than than just building a new road or or completely redoing a new road. Uh, So it's really a financial problem, it's a money problem. Uh, And in in my opinion, it's a fairness issue with those living in unincorporated rural parts of King County that they should be able to have roads that 
they can uh, drive on and live on uh, just like those in the cities. Uh, and they, because of the system that has been set up, they aren't able to do that based on the, essentially paying uh, the, a share, their share. Uh, so I think that the county uh, and, and maybe past the county, because um, they're not the only ones that drive on those roads. Think about it. People who drive on unincorporated roads aren't just people who live in unincorporated areas. Um, I live in Issaquah, but I also drive on roads in unincorporated King County. I also drive on roads in Sammamish and Redmond and Suquamish. Uh, so uh, there needs to be uh, a system set up. And part of this is the state is, uh, as was previously mentioned, allowing um, you know, everyone to essentially pay into, um, into the system so that we can actually have roads uh, incorporate and people can actually live in those in that uh, part of King County because uh, that's really important is we have to maintain the character of unincorporated rural parts of King County uh, so people can live in those places uh, and are not unable to because uh, they're not roads are not drivable out there. Okay, thank you. And I just give you all three a heads up. My solution is if the state is uh, passes its per mile uh, gas tax, and we have a mechanism for um, measuring m the mileage that everybody drives on Washington roads, I think one of you three should take the initiative and say, okay, then let's keep track of how many country roads you've driven on, how many unincorporated roads you've driven on, and add a surtax. So <laughs> just to pay for those. So that's my solution um, to the whole problem. And I, I expected more laughter that I'm hearing on that one. <laughs> I'll unmute for that. That's fair. That's good. That's good. Okay. We're going to take another brief break here, and we will be right back with our three candidates for King County Council, our, our position out here. I'm Heather Stark, and you're listening to Valley Talk on Valley 104.9 FM. You're listening to Valley 104.9 FM, your station for Northwest eclectic music. Hi. I'm Seth Shostak, and I'm an actual scientist, although I don't wear a white lab coat. Maybe a straitjacket. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm a science journalist, and we are your hosts on Big Picture Science, bringing you the latest from the labs every week. So join us Thursdays at 6 p.m. for the coolest in science and technology, Big Picture Science. That's Thursdays at 6 p.m. right here on Valley 104.9 FM. Hi, I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian, investigative nutritionist, and host of Food Sleuth Radio, the show that helps us think beyond our plates, connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. If you care about the food you eat, then join me on Sundays at 3 p.m. on Valley 104.9 FM for Food Sleuth Radio. What inspires an author to write a book? How do novels and plays get written? Why are some books impossible to put down? Hi, I'm Richard Walensky, and I'll be speaking with authors getting to the heart of their creativity and their research on Bookwaves Sunday afternoon at 3.30 on Valley 104.9 FM. Welcome back to Valley Talk. I'm Heather Stark with our three King County candidates for our King County Council. And I just gave them a little heads up that I've been asking a lot of questions. And in our final segment here, I thought I would ask them to do some of the work as if they haven't been doing any yeah. work, uh, yeah. but to come up with some of the, the questions that they wish that I had asked them that I did not ask. So Sarah, let's start with you. What do you wish I would have asked you and how would you answer it? I wish you would have asked, um, Sarah, why do you have, how is it that you have 162 endorsements? How is it that you have endorsements from Dow Constantine and Bob Ferguson and, and um, you know, so many of the, of the elected officials and also local leaders in labor unions and organizations? Okay. And I said to come up with the question and then answer it. So... <clears throat> So I would say, thank you. Thank you for that question. You would have asked me, I appreciate that. Uh, I would answer that by saying, um, you know, I've worked so hard for the last five years in our community on civic engagement. I've just been deeply entrenched in the community. And I've been, you know, 27 years, 21 years in North Bend, six years in, I mean, 21 years in Issaquah and six years in North Bend and the first executive director for Eastside Housing in Redmond when we were 
working on increasing the number of transitional housing units and shelter units. I was the first executive director for that in multi, you know, $20 million budget and so forth. And, you know, I really uh, have developed a very strong base and relationship and people know me as doing the work. And so I've worked on their campaigns to engage them as a volunteer. I have worked on with organizations that they support and they've seen the civic engagement that we have built and, um, and the ability to, to bring in people like Lisa Callen and Kim Schreier and Barb Michelle and, and, you know, Christiana De Leon and city council members and school board members and so many over the years, and they've watched that. And so I'm very, very grateful to have worked with these folks, worked with labor, worked with fire and, and been able to bring their engagement as well as we build out our community. And I found it so exciting to have the civic engagement make a difference in our leadership. Thank you. Kathy, do you need me to repeat the question? No, nope, I got it. I have got it. <laughs> um, I'm trying to vacillate between two different questions. Um, but I think what I would say first is um, what, what surprises me most in this race? So what surprises me most is some of the ideas like we should audit. I don't know what more we could audit than we already audit. We have our very own audit team in the county that has won awards. Um, and we have an audit schedule. We have an audit program of work every single year. Um, when we talk about this program should be developed at that program, and I'm sitting here thinking that program already exists and we won national awards. Um, so if it wasn't winning a national award, then maybe it should be modified. Um, and of course, everything can be improved, but there have been many suggestions. As far as labor leaders, I haven't checked other candidates, but I have labor leaders endorsing me. Um, and I'm sure Joe does too. And um, I also have one labor group that um, unfortunately did not go through the process um, and did not contact Joe or me because I asked for Joe, did you contact Joe? And so when you get endorsements from people who didn't even call the other two candidates, you know, I, I know there's a lot of numbers being thrown out, but if the process was my husband called, then I don't really think that that's, um, that is the way that people should be getting endorsements. So I haven't looked at Joe's list, but Joe, I hope you have a great list. And um, there are people supporting me, but the most important people are the citizens that know what you've done for them, what you will continue to do for them. And that's what's most important to me. Okay, thank you, Kathy. Joe, ball's in your court. What question do you wish I had asked? Well, I think one of the questions is about uh, transportation. And a lot of, you know, been a part of this community for a long time and traffic has always been a concern. It's, it's, it's one of those concerns that everybody uh, really faces. So uh, let's talk about that. And uh, when you think about it, the east side and our district has grown quite a bit. Uh, and a lot of this is due to some of the economic prosperity in the central Puget Sound region. Um, and this has, of course, made our community grown and cost some growing pains. And traffic has been just one of those issues that has increased and increased. And now that the pandemic is, uh, at least for some people, and just to make it clear, the pandemic is not over. We have the, the Delta variant uh, that is out there. Uh, and for the, particularly for those who are unvaccinated, um, it's gonna continue to be a problem. Uh, but traffic is increasing. Uh, and, uh, you know, Redmond is a prominent examples of some of the growth in our area. Uh, but we really need to invest in transportation alternatives. Um, this is really important to get people out of their cars, uh, instead use something else to get around. Uh, and even if you don't use the public transportation, you'll benefit from it because there will be fewer cars in the road. So this is the okay, bus. Let, let me interrupt now with a yeah. follow up here. How, uh, if I live in Carnation and I need to go into uh, Bellevue or God forbid, downtown Seattle, what do you propose? Well, like I said, not everyone's going to use public transportation. Uh, I, I would hope that, say you live in Carnation, that we're going to have some good uh, alternatives for you to get to Carnation to the light rail station in, that's coming to downtown Redmond in 2024. So if you want to get into Seattle, but you don't want to have to deal with the traffic and the parking, uh, if you want to go to a Mariners game 
all the hassle to, to get to get through all the traffic and near T-Mobile Park and parking. You go into downtown Redmond, you park, you jump on the light rail, you get to downtown, uh, you get to so uh, Soto and uh, you go see the game and come back. Uh, and it's real simple. Uh, so this really, and, and that's part of it. Thank you for mentioning. Uh, we need the, the downtown uh, Redmond Light Mail station is gonna be the end of the line, but it shouldn't be uh, the end of the line for access to it. We need to make sure that really everyone can access to it, have access to it in the area so that the benefits of it uh, are really made uh, as abundant as possible. Uh, and then, you know, going back to the, you know, original uh, question is uh, getting fewer cars on, having fewer cars on the road. Okay, thank you. Um, you need all three of you, I would like to just throw in my two cents worth, and that is check out the Growth Management Act and compare that with the mass transit, like you mentioned, the downtown Redmond um, um, transfer station. It seems to me as a resident out here that there's um, the Growth Management Act seems to be able to be pushed aside if it's for something like mass transit or something or a, a huge, huge housing development that can pay um, money for mitigation. So that's just my two cents worth here. Um, it seems inconsistent sometimes to me as a resident. So. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> I thank you for being a part of this two-part series. I think that we've covered a lot of territory, and I think that our uh, friends and neighbors, when they go to vote, will have a little bit better idea of who they want to represent them at the King County Council. We have three minutes left, so I'm going to give you each one moment, one minute, to answer the following question, and then we'll sign off. How should King County Council differ from the notorious city council in Seattle? Kathy? Well, that's an easy one because we, we made that decision collectively that because there were so many things happening in Seattle on their council, we said we want to be the government that doesn't get in the newspaper all the time, is functional and gets the job done and shows what collaboration looks like. So we've done a number of things, as including, of course, we are nonpartisan and we are meeting together. Um, and so that rather than having individual caucuses, we're meeting together. So everybody has equal information at the same time. And I'm very anxious to get back in person so we can have those hallway conversations and be able to collaborate even more. Thank you. Joe. Yeah, so that's an easy that's an easy one. Seattle, the city council in Seattle represents the city of Seattle. And the county represents the county and they're different jurisdictions. Sometimes there's collaboration. Uh, if you're really talking about district three, the district all of us are running for, uh, we have a very unique perspective uh, in this district. Uh, and uh, it should be our own, uh, we should have a representative who understands that. Uh, and who reflects that uh, on council and who makes it uh, loud and clear on the council. Uh, it's very simple. Uh, and if the interests overlap with Seattle, then great. If not, then uh, we go our own way and we advocate for it as hard as we can. Uh, and, that's, and that's how we're different. Okay, thank you. Sarah. I'm very excited to collaborate and cooperate, work on new, new ideas and fresh ideas and bring these forward. Um, you know, I, I enjoy everybody on the council and uh, I think everybody worked very hard. I think they're respectful and uh, I'm very, very excited to be part of it. Okay, short answer. Good. I want to thank you, all three of you, for being on the show with me and putting up with my silly questions and comments sometimes. I appreciate it. I think that if all else fails, you should always just have a sense of humor about things. And that's the way I try to operate. I wish you all the best of luck. I wish you that um, you have an effective and, and uh, um, learning experience on your campaign. I guess that's because, I guess we should all learn from whatever endeavor we attempt. So however it turns out, whoever is the final um, uh, representative on King County Council, I know that all three of you will be uh, participating in your communities and in our community. And I welcome that and I wish you good luck. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening 
to Valley Talk on Valley 104.9 FM. 